Welcome to the ACR Bulletin Podcast, the show where we examine the latest trends affecting radiology. I'm your host, Chris Hobson, and today we'll be dis- discussing new recommendations published by the ACR and the American College of Emergency Physicians, or ASAP, that guide health systems, physicians, and other clinicians in improving patient outcomes by addressing actionable incidental findings, or AIFs, in emergency department imaging. Today I have with me as guests uh, Gregory Nicola, MD, FACR, and Christopher L. Moore, MD. Dr. Dr. Nicola serves as chair of the ACR Commission on Economics at ACR and is partner at the Hackensack Radiology Group in New Jersey. And Dr. Moore is professor of emergency medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. Gentlemen, thank you very very much for being here today. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Well, I should also mention right off the top that um, to detail your all's work and the, the team's work, um, ACR and ASEP uh, jointly published a white paper in the Journal of the American College of Radiology, and we've invited you all uh, today here to walk us through the high points. So to get us started, Dr. Nicola, um, for anyone who's listening who may not be familiar with the term, can you please define what qualifies as an actionable incidental finding or AIF? Yeah, absolutely. But before I get started, I just want to give a lot of credit to Chris Moore who is clearly my counterpart on this uh, podcast, but I will tell you, he he did the lion's share of the work um, and really ran an effective group. So th- thank you, Chris, and, and to the American College of Emergency Physicians for being co-partners in this. Um, so an actual internal finding, we actually define it in the paper. It's a mass or lesion that's not related to the visit for why the patient's actually there. It's probably not causing the acute symptoms in the emergency department. Yet it's something that's concerning and it could be cancer. We're not, sometimes we're not sure of it, but we have some type of follow-up recommendation um, put into our report and that some way needs to be communicated downstream so that the patient has appropriate follow-up and that we catch something that could harm the patient in the long-term and not in the emergency department. All right. Well, and, and Dr. Moore, please feel free to jump in if, if you want to add anything at, at any point. So uh, I like to treat these more as conversations than interviews if possible. So um, with that in mind, um, the emergency department or, or ED uh, represents a particularly challenging clinical environment for the appropriate communication follow-up of, of AIFs, as I've, I've learned in my own reading about this subject. So Dr. Nicola, can you please give us um, some understanding as to why this is and uh, why a collaboration between the ACR and ASEP was necessary to address these challenges? Yeah, so again, I work behind the scenes in the emergency department. I would love for Chris to chime in here. Again, I'm going to really quote from the paper and our discussions uh, as part of the cohort of people that develop these um, recommendations. Um, Just imagine the emergency department is extremely packed, extremely busy. Um, That's one thing that makes it difficult. The patient's there for an emergent visit. They have some symptom or sign that is usually pretty severe or potentially life-threatening. The last thing on the patient's mind or the ER doctor's mind is an incidental finding that could be worked up over months or years. Um, so that setting is quite difficult to communicate in potentially not something insignificant at the time, but potentially significant in the future. Um, the patient's probably not in the right mindset to receive a recommendation from the doctor. The patient's an important aspect of follow-up. We, we have to communicate the patients, make sure that they understand why they're coming back, um, and include them in the diagnostic process. Um, ER doctors do not necessarily have continuity of care. 
They might see the patient in the emergency department, the patient may be admitted to another clinical team, they may be discharged in the emergency physician, and or radiologists might never see the patient again. That lack of continuity makes following up of incidental finding very difficult. Um, those are just some of the very um, important points of the ER. And, and again, going back to the high volume, you really just want to answer the acute question, stabilize the patient, and then um, either admit them or discharge them. So it's a, it's a particularly difficult environment for these, these secondary findings. Yeah, Greg, you could have, could have fooled me that you've worked in the emergency department. I think that's a great uh, <laughs> summary of what we're doing. Um, I guess the only thing I might add to that is that sometimes even when you talk to the patient and you communicate with them, they're just not in the state to really hear it um, because, as you said, they're there for an emergent thing or they're in a stressful time of their life. And, you know, you may tell them very clearly that they have a finding that should be followed up and it just doesn't register at that time, which is why I think, you know, it's important to think about this, you know, system-wide and, and long-term follow-up communication. It's a really interesting perspective. Well, um, we, I guess we should make it clear before we go too much further um, that the re recommendations uh, listed in the white paper we'll be discussing are meant to be best practices and are not considered standards, at least now, um, at least at this stage. So, um, so I guess to arrive at these best practices, um, the group sought consensus in the areas, um, uh, actually just a few areas, reporting, communication, and follow-up of AIFs on ED imaging tests. And, and as a result, you actually came up, you all came up with four areas of consensus, it sounds like. So Dr. Moore, can you please talk a little bit more about those areas of consensus? And, you know, Dr. Nicola, please feel free to chime in too. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we got together as a group and really tried to, you know, flesh this out and, you know, all the, all the things that, you know, came in here and, and kind of uh, put it into four buckets uh, of, of what we think are important to just sort of try to define best practices for. And that included the the elements of the CT report, you know, what should be in the report, where it should be, uh, the communication of findings with the patient, which is probably one of the most important things, you know, how should they get that? Is it verbally? Is it written? Is it from, you know, the primary doctor, the radiologist, um, the, you know, follow-up? And then communication among clinicians is also important. I mean, does a radiologist really have to call like the emergency physician every time, or is it appropriate to put it in a written report? Mm. Um, and then, you know, the fourth thing is really systems approaches, which is, you know, if I had to highlight one thing that I think is most important out of this article, it's that we're not trying to put the burden on any individual clinician. This tends to be a systems issue. Uh, and there need to be processes uh, in place to ensure that these things don't fall through the cracks. So that was sort of the, the fourth element that we talked about. Yeah, I, I would just add how I like to look at this section, and, and, and I think it's important to think of it this way, is how are you clear? And that's the reporting section. How can we be clear what is the finding and what to do with it and when to do with it? And then the second part is how do we create redundancy in our system so that the patient doesn't fall through the cracks and we can help close the loop. And the redundancy can be multiple things, multiple communication events, um, tracking systems. And those are all things our cohort discussed and came to conclusions on. So. Interesting. Well, you've already both touched on the kind of my next question, which involves um, the the systems approach nature of, of your recommendations. So, you know, the white paper notes that that a systems approach leveraging the electronic medical record and other technology is paramount to, to an effort like this. So I'd really like both of your <laughs> insights into this, but Dr. Moore, maybe if you could start, um, can you please elaborate on the systems approach with respect to AIFs? Just say a little bit, adding more to maybe what you said a little bit before. 
Yeah, so I mean, as you mentioned, I think it's important to note that these are what we feel are our best practices. And we do understand that, you know, there's going to be situations and facilities where resources are more limited. Um, but I think one of the things I really wanted to be careful about here is, you know, putting more, you know, medical legal liability on any individual clinician around, around these things. So I think what we're really trying to do is provide sort of a, a blueprint and a recommendation, you know, for the the hospital administrators that are looking at this stuff and saying, you know, well, how do we avoid missing these? And, and the answer, I think, is to really look at how it's going to work best at your shop in terms of having a way to track these. Um, you know, many, even smaller emergency departments now have somebody who's following stuff up and it, it's clinical care and it's, you know, did they get the appointment or, you know, did the blood culture get reported? Um, so building that into that sort of a, a systems approach for follow-up, I think, is is what we're really trying to advocate for here is to have the resources to do that so it doesn't fall on the individual clinician to you know make sure that they're calling a patient three days later to see if they really are getting follow-up and things like that. Yeah, I would just add, I, you know, this sounds like a non sequitur, but I, I brought my car in the other day for new tires and I had multiple communication events um, about they received my tire, they received my tires in, they put my tires on, the payment, and then even follow-up that my car was dropped off into my, my garage. I live in New York City, so they actually drop your car off into your garage sometimes. Um, I, I think it's only appropriate that we strive to have that kind of communication with our patients. You've got to remember to come to the emergency department for an acute event. They're, they're potentially extremely sick. Um, they're not going to remember a lot of what you've told them. And if that's the last time they hear that that um, important potential finding of an incidental, actionable incidental finding, um, it, it may not be on top of their mind. And, and I think as a healthcare system, uh, you know, we, we probably are, um, need to strive towards better communication along the entire um, loop of incidental findings and making sure the patient follows up. And this is a particularly difficult if, issue for both emergency room physicians, um, uh, emergency department physicians and radiologists and that we are exposed to a fair amount of medical liability because we're involved in these cases directly. Um, it's the radiologist's findings. It's the uh, emergency room, emergency department's doctor's communication event that could slip through the cracks and, and be difficult to, um, difficult to support in, in, in the court of law. So we, we certainly have some liability here that um, we would like to protect, and we think that there are ways to do it at the system level. So. Yeah, I was just getting ready to to also liken it to maybe Amazon or Uber, but then we yeah. started talking about legal liability, and maybe that's where the the uh, the uh, similarities kind of end. So, well, um, yeah, I guess on that same note, um, it sounds like the team consisted of a diverse group, uh, including radiologists, emergency physicians, uh, and patient advocates. And, and you all were just talking about that continuity of care just now. So, can you please speak in more detail, uh, Dr. Nicola? Maybe we'll start with you um, about how the collaboration worked in general, and particularly, I'm just particularly interested in, in how you involve patient advocates in all of this, because doc, Dr. Nicola, as you just said. Um, sometimes that can be the point of failure if if you're just you know dealing with them in the moment. Um, sometimes things might get lost uh, through no fault of the patient. But yeah, I, you know this might come to a surprise for many of the listeners and viewers. But the American College of Radiology and the American College of Emergency Physicians have worked collaboratively for a long time. I I know for the last decade I've been involved with the ASAP and quality and safety issues. Um, we have a couple grants that we've worked on um, with the American College of Emergency Physicians. This is really just the maturity of our relationship. 
um, that we have common goals and, and really common, common um, ways to address them. Um, so th it was an easy collaboration. We tr made the group diverse in that we picked clinicians, both radiologists and emergency department doctors from small and rural areas, plus academic, plus private practice settings. Um, and we also felt it was Im imperative that we had uh, the patient's voice. And so we did have a patient on the panel that answered all the same questions that the clinicians did, uh, had unbelievable insight. Um, and Chris ran a modified Delphi technique. He might want to expand on that, but uh, basically we set up a series of questions and all ended up voting on what we think the appropriate uh, goal, goal should be in each of those questions. And uh, we had discussion around every one of the topics and I learned from everybody on the call, from the radiologist cohort that I've worked with many times, to the to the emergency department doctors, to the patient. Um, we learned and it altered our judgment based on feedback and our own experience. So it was a, a very uh, a productive and rewarding experience. And and hopefully we've provided recommendations that the entire health system can strive for. So I just love the idea that you involve so many such a range of people that hopefully can scale in so many different environments. I'm sorry, Dr. Moore, go ahead. Did you want to? Sure. No, yeah, and I think that's great. Um, uh, a shout out to the ACR, honestly. I mean, I, I did a lot of work on the paper, but there were a lot of people behind the scenes, uh, particularly at the ACR, that helped with survey administration and putting results together. Uh, we did try to do our best to get a diverse group. Um, I will say it skewed a little bit, probably towards the academic, a little bit more towards the urban. Um, you know, this is a little bit of a different animal in a very small rural emergency department that doesn't deal with as much imaging or have as many resources for follow-up. Um, but, you know, we did have, you know, 15 people. We had uh, nominations from ACR and ASAP. And, you know, as you'll see in the demographics part of the paper, we did at least try to have, you know, diversity of, of practice patterns, um, experience, um, and, you know, involving a patient as well, along with people who do some, some of the systems uh, um, and IT stuff. Very interesting. Well, um, you know, Dr. Nicole, I was going to at least, you know, start kind of direct this next question to you because you are the, you know, uh, the head of the ACR uh, Commission on Economics. But the question of financial incentives, uh, you know, can represent a headwind oftentimes when it comes to implementing best practices like these. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about um, how follow up at the, you know, the system level involves resources that maybe a lot of current payment structures may not be aligned to incentivize and perhaps, you know, provide maybe an example or two, or, or even just speculate about how um, effective incentives might be structured or aligned in the future. Yeah, th this is, this is a really important topic. And it's one of the reasons why certainly uh, the practices in small and rural settings and in underserved areas, um, it can be problematic. This is resource intensive. Um, you're talking about databases, and almost certainly human capital to help manage the database of actual incidental findings. And that is expensive. Um, now, larger systems that do a lot of imaging may make some of the revenue or all of the revenue back if they can get the patients back into their own imaging system. Now, there, there are certainly um, anti-kickback and stark um, violations uh, depending on how you structure that, but it can be done. Um, creating a revenue stream that balances out the infrastructure that you need. Now, smaller systems would really struggle with that. One of the topics we did discuss is could we create a technical only payment and not a payment to the clinicians, but a, a payment to systems or um, practices 
that are spending money on these types of resources? Could we create a coding way to potentially reimburse these systems? And um, it was looked at favorably by our panel. I think it didn't reach clinical significance, but it was looked at favorably. I'm um, thinking maybe in the future, this is something we should explore. Now, certainly if a system's uh, really heavily into risk, um, meaning that they are financially um, liable for uh, potential bad outcomes in patient care, um, you would find a system wanting to invest in this um, potentially more. But again, this is, this is a financial investment that includes infrastructure for IT and and staff, and and that's one of the reasons why it's a it's it's really a heavy lift for small systems. Yeah, I, I kind of figure we're a ways off from from any sort of system wide incentives like this, and yeah. uh, maybe even in the Medicare Medicaid realm, which seems to be ahead of the game most times. So I don't know, Doctor Moore, uh, from your perspective, it's, I don't know if you had anything to add on that, or if if that if your thoughts pretty much align with Doctor Nicola's. On that, yeah, no, I think definitely um, it is an investment. I think there probably is return on investment uh, if you're getting people back to, um, you know, do the imaging appropriately, and also, you know, sometimes identifying early malignancy that needs to be treated. I mean, the other side of it, I mean, I think it is a medical legal risk. Um, so, you know, a, a single lawsuit <laughs> can cost you, you know, more than it would to, to run this program for a couple of years, maybe. Um, you know, so I think just thinking about, you know, the big picture and, and keeping it patient centered again, uh, you know, doing the right thing for the patient, I think is, is important, even if the finances, you know, it's don't totally align. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll stress what Chris just said. It was, it was hitting me that we, I hate when we get into these financial sections, um, it's reality, but it's not honestly more, sometimes the morality we, we miss. And the, the truth is I'd want this to happen if I was a patient that came to the uh, emergency department and had an actual incidental finding, I would appreciate um, future follow-up and coordination of my care. Um, and I think uh, everyone should hope to strive for that in our health system um, as um, they can manage the resources. Interesting perspective. Well, I, I guess, you know, if we're st sticking on the area of consensus for a another minute, um, one area of consensus that did jump out at me was that the team felt that patient facing language should be included in the follow-up reports. And that's, that's a very interesting theme that uh, ACR has taken up for years now, actually, is uh, that, that patient friendly language uh, in, in reports and elsewhere. So um, this seems particularly relevant in light of legislation like the 21st Century Cures Act and, and other things like that. So I was wondering, you know, starting with Dr. Moore, maybe if you could please uh, uh, speak to why including patient-facing language and follow-up communications is so important. Yeah, it was interesting when the CARES Act went into effect, um, many uh, patients were immediately getting radiology reports, and sometimes we'd walk into the room and they would have a diagnosis before we had a chance to discuss it with them. And I think we've actually put some uh, <laughs> systems in place to uh, avoid that happening you know, too dramatically. But the fact is the patients are a lot more, they're just getting the actual report, right? So when they read, you know, there's a nodule and, and this and that, and it, you know, if it's medical language that's not clear, um, I, I think it's, you know, tough for them to know exactly what to make of that. So I think mm -hmm. it's just it's just good practice to have a, you know, a dot phrase or something that you can put in there that uh, explains it in a, in a way that people can understand and be able to, to you know, act on um, and, you know, really know what's going on uh, without, covering it in medical jargon. <laughs> yeah, I'll add to that, even outside of our 
practice that supports the emergency department. Um, we have gotten a significant escalation in phone calls from patients after the, the Cures Act. Um, we, we often speak to patients far more frequently than we used to, um, asking us to explain specific report lines. And I have found simplification and clarification, going back to clarification, um, um, really helps me manage my time. A is it may cut down on a patient anxiety having to call me because I'll tell you when I get on the phone and a patient is upset about something in my report, I hear, the first thing I hear is anxiety in the patient's voice. And that's not something I want to ever provoke in somebody, especially often it's an insignificant finding. So wording it in a way that is more comforting to the patient, A, helps that anxiety. B, may actually cut down on overall phone calls that we get, which maybe is a good or bad thing, but at least we're communicating upfront and clearly to the patient. Um, and C, when you actually do communicate to the patient, um, you can use simple language again, and it reassures them. So I, I think it's pretty imperative to try to be clear in our reports. And when I when I mean clear, it's to, to all stakeholders. And I can, I'll put a, for, for any uh, listeners or viewers who might not be familiar with the Cures Act, um, I can put a, a link in the show notes, but Dr. Nicolov, just could you say a line or two about what, you know, from your perspective, what, what that legislation is all about? Um, just a quick yeah, summary. Yeah. It's a very comprehensive piece of legislation, but one of the main tenets is that they, uh, there's an impetus to involve patients in their care paradigm um, more clearly and effectively. And one of the things that affects radiology is the release of radiology reports um, pretty much as soon as they're signed. Um, and a lot of electronic health records have alert systems that will send out a text if the patient's properly registered with the electronic health records that your report's ready for review. So I could sign a report and within five minutes or three minutes, a patient could read the report um, before they've spoken to the ordering clinician. Um, now, I, I think this is this is great. It's involving patients in their care, but it does uh, um, make us all think of how we can be better communicators. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a uh, I guess the the mild pushback I've seen um, when it comes to incidental findings management sometimes does seem to be um, you know if people aren't too high on it is that um, it maybe does provoke a little bit of anxiety if if it's at the end of the day, not a not a uh, really um, impactful finding. So I'm glad that we're addressing this. Um, I guess another area of consensus um, involved agreement that patients should be made aware of uh, uh, actionable or AIFs uh, during their initial um, emergency department encounters. So Dr. Moore, um, as, as someone who works in that environment uh, quite often, um, can you please speak to maybe a, a couple of things like A, why is this uh, kind of communication key? And B, um, how much responsibility is borne by the patient to monitor their own health and keep open lines of communication with, with their PCP? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the things that we came to consensus on are, are basically that, you know, when you have one of these things, there is an obligation of the emergency physician to verbally communi communicate it to the patient and to put it in writing that it's in their thing and that they should have it followed up. You know, we also did agree that, you know, some communication at a latter time, you know, for the exact reason I brought up earlier that they, you may tell them, but they may not quite hear it. <laughs> um, but these are all things that, you know, I think, um, are important to, you know, uh, just reach consensus on this is this is the way to to appropriately communicate it. Very interesting. Well, um, and Dr. Nicola, does that kind of square with with how you feel about that? Yeah, 
Okay. Absolutely. Good. Well, that is consensus. We can get consensus right here on this podcast episode. That's great. Well, um, Dr. Nicole, staying with you for a second, um, how, how do you think about these, rec- how do you think these recommendations might affect radiologists workflow? Because I think that might be a thought in the back of uh, some viewers' minds right now. Well, I look at this as a call to action for the whole system, not just the radiology department, but the emergency department, the hospital networks, um, anywhere seeing ur- urgent patients um, for medical needs. Um, that you know, we we all continuously have to set goals and strive for them. And and again, I go back to: Are we communicating effectively in our report? Uh, it's far too often I see radiology reports that say follow up with a well, without a time period, follow up of what modality is it CT or MRI, contrast or not. Uh, we we really have to be clear: We're the experts in imaging. Um, we have significant guidelines created by the American College of Radiology, the RADS criteria where a number of incidental findings are now um, concretely um, categorized into what type of follow-up should be done. For example, we have lung RADs and pi RADs and LIRADs for different um, incidental findings across the body region. Um, and by using those standardized lexicon and simple um, language, we, we really can make an impact, um, make the emergency department's job um, better. But also don't forget, much of these structured um, RADS criteria that the ACR has created for actual incidental findings um, are structured data elements, and they can be extracted from reports much easier with machine learning and natural language processing techniques to be put in a database, whereas free text is a little more cumbersome to extract from reports and a little bit harder to track if you're trying to do some sophisticated IT um, tracking system downstream. But So there's, there's a lot of reasons to create um, a very cogent, um, structured way of reporting and clear communication um, from the report all the way to our communication events. Also, I think good habits are good habits. If you get used to, for I can just imagine, at least from the radiology side, if we get used to um, calling over specific reasons, the emergency doctors, the emergency doctors also have a habit of communicating findings to the patients very meticulously and methodically, um, there's less likely that something will slip through the through, slip through the cracks. So it's very important to develop good habits and clear communication throughout this entire um, paradigm. I'm glad that you brought up natural language processing because I we could spend a whole separate episode probably yeah. on artificial intelligence and because that's kind of the the buzzword of the day. Um, but but yeah, it seems like there's probably this is probably fertile territory for for some AI you know, um, opportunities. But anyway, that's probably a whole separate conversation. Um, uh, Dr. Moore, did you um, have any workflow concerns from your end? Um, I mean, as far as workflow, I mean, I think it's just defining that, you know, there are certain things that are, are best practices to happen. You, you just got to make time to do that when you have an incidental finding to talk to the patient and put it, put it in the discharge um, uh, instructions. I, I think, you know, the one thing I would um, emphasize from what we um, put in the paper is a, a need for further sort of data and, and understanding about how these findings actually translate into cancers. I think there's still a lot to be learned about that. Um, and that's, you know, something that, you know, ultimately the decision to get follow-up imaging may be, you know, a shared decision-making type thing with the patient. Um, so, you know, having data about how many of these findings actually go on to become cancer, I think is super important. Um, you know, the Fleischner criteria actually recently relaxed a little bit because they were calling so many things that were um, small nodules that are probably nothing. Uh, I, I think we still need to find that balance about what is the 
right level of you know um, uh, alarm or or concern to follow something up. And so I think we still need more data on that. I just want to emphasize that. Interesting. It's a work yeah, in that, progress. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a great point. There's no doubt much of this is just a consensus and not not based on a ton of research. And uh, again, another ripe area for artificial intelligence applications that can go through huge databases and look at incidental findings in a way we've never done. And certainly that work is already going on. So interesting. Well, we'll have to have you back in, I would say the future, but maybe next week, <laughs> the way things are developing, AI is moving so fast. Well, this last question, I wanted to, to really direct to both of you. And I, I was wondering, you know, maybe Dr. Nicole, if you could start. Um, the white paper acknowledges that investment um, on the part of the hospital or healthcare system really is necessary when it comes to managing AIFs. And we've kind of touched on that at the margins earlier. So things like automated tracking, setting up lines of communication, yeah. et cetera, we've kind of already touched on. Um, if, and not least of which is hiring additional personnel to actually follow up on a lot of this. Um, so, you know, some listeners might see a lot of this as maybe a, a hurdle uh, for managing AIFs in addition to the, you know, the technology lift, um, just the the sheer, you know, capital input. So what argument can you all make, um, you know, for what a systems approach like this is ultimately good, not just for patient outcomes, but also for the health, health system's bottom line? Yeah, we've touched a little bit upon this already. I think if the system's uh, a reasonable size, the, the tracking of incidental findings in those patients coming back into your system. And we're not talking about a small number. Um, Chris does an eloquent job in the introduction section of talking about how frequent the, these visits are. I mean, we have, I think it was 150 million emergency department visits a year. 30 million of them end up in CT scans and something up to 30% of those have actual incidental findings. I mean, we're, we're talking about millions of cases. And if you were to drag just even a fraction of those back into your system for imaging um, in the fee-for-service environment, it's gonna be revenue generating. I think that um, you could actually make money in the fee-for-service system if you're um, successful in imp implementing this program. Um, and if you have any risk whatsoever, risk-based contracting, um, you, you know, someday I would hope that, that and I know we're working on a measures, uh, real objective measures to measure how um, good a clinical team is at at making these follow up recommendations and, and closing the loop. Um, someday these might make their way into risk based contracting for sure. I can imagine a world that that's this does, um, and and what the patient outcomes are uh, are imperative. So I, I think that um, honestly the argument for a moderate, a medium sized system, the large system. Um, is is pretty clear that it's probably going to be revenue generating. It's it's the small to medium sized systems that will struggle with this because uh, there might not be a, a full reimbursement on um, full might not make them whole on the infrastructure that they need. So, gotcha. but but that that will become cheaper. I can tell you, I we we see a number of vendors. And I'm not going to mention any vendors specifically. I see a number of um, vendors, especially in the AI space, that are now. Um, detecting incidental findings, understanding that they have a have to have a database, and they're databasing these, and and also many of them have gotten into the game of communication, so they're able to look at communication events either directly to patients or finding primary care doctors inside charts, and so this this will become um, democratized and cheaper um, with technology. 
So interesting. Well, Dr. Moore, same question. What, you know, what argument can you make that a systems approach like this is ultimately good for patient outcomes and the, the bottom line of the health system? I think Greg did a great job. I mean, we have touched on this a little bit, but I mean, I think there is the potential for just return on investment, but it's just, it's just the right thing to do for the patients, right? I mean, uh, and if, you know, if these get missed, you know, they're, they're infrequent that they turn into cancer, right? But when they do, it's a big deal. <laughs> I right. mean, um, you know, these are people that may die and I've, I've seen cases um, where missed incidental findings have come back. Um, so I think that's probably the, the most important thing to think about is that it's just, it's the right thing to do. Um, but I think that there are probably economic incentives, both, um, you know, for just doing the imaging and then also avoiding, you know, medical legal risk uh, and then, you know, getting the patient into treatment if needed. <laughs> yes. So a lot of, a lot of work left to be done. I hope, I hope that uh, I can have both of you back. Uh, and so we can track this really super important um, topic in the future. It's been really a pleasure speaking with both of you. Um, I don't know if you're both, I think Dr. Nicole, I know you're pretty active on, on social media and elsewhere. Um, uh, is that the best place for people to find you if they want to continue this important conversation to, uh, Dr. Nicola, is, is that Twitter or? Yeah, I, I'm on Twitter and that's perfectly fine. I think most people also, at least in the American College Radiology world, have access to my email. Okay. But uh, Twitter's fine and maybe you can post that at the end I can or, or as part of this. Um, and, and if you don't mind, I just want to follow up on something else Chris said real sure. quickly. Um, uh, the staff of both American College Emergent Physicians, American College Radiology did a particularly outstanding job here. Um, I particularly, um, I don't want to single out one person, but there's one person I have to single out here, and that's Nancy Frederick. She she really drove um, the importance of this. Um, she has always been the um, ultimate um, um, champion uh, of, of being patient-centric, and uh, I just want to thank the entire staff of both organizations, and, and especially Nancy Frederick. So thank you. Excellent. Yeah, to highlight uh, what Greg said earlier, I think this really is the result of a uh, you know, fairly mature relationship between ACR and ASAP. And that really is uh, because of many of the people, honestly, at ACR that I've worked with closely. I mean, uh, Judy Burleson, Maitre Bargavan, um, a lot of people, you know, that see the importance of having this, this stuff happen. So uh, it, it's not something that happened by accident. It's been a long uh, time period and a long relationship. And we look forward to continuing to work with ACR. Absolutely. Well, and Dr. Moore, if, if anyone wanted to reach out to you and cause, cause they're, you know, uh, we could go on and on for hours talking about this really, really interesting subject, but, but if they want to reach out to you and is, is there, are you anywhere to be, uh, found on social media or. Yeah. yeah no, I do social media. I mean, okay. email's probably best. I, I have, I have Twitter. I don't tweet myself, but I follow stuff and I'm on Facebook for conversations. So, uh, you can find me. Excellent. Thank you so much. Well, and to our viewers, if you have uh, ideas for future show topics, please let us know on Twitter at Radiology ACR and please use the hashtag, uh, hashtag ACR Bulletin Podcast. I also invite you to check out all of our past episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and please do uh, be sure to subscribe to ACR's YouTube channel to see our latest episodes. Uh, and while you're there, please hit the like button if you found this video valuable. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much again, and, and please do come back in the, in the future and, and let, let's keep talking about this. Thanks, thanks, Chris. Yeah, thanks, Chris and Chris. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners. This has been the ACR Bulletin Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>